Stay tuned for The Turning Point with Mike Fader. today and um, to come down to the studio to record this show, uh, <clears throat> figuring there would be a lot of um, demonstrations, a lot of protests, and that the bus, the regular bus I take, would be jammed um, into traffic. Uh, you know, there would be people, outraged people on the streets. There would be in front of Trump Tower, which is where my bus goes to come down here. And um, there was absolutely nothing. Everything, uh, everything just went straight through. I, I don't know. It's it's like the city wasn't paying any. The city's not paying any attention to it at all. I guess it's because all the action is down in Washington today. I mean, there will be a huge number of protests. The National Park Service says that four times the amount of um, 
permits for organized demonstrations and protests have been applied for as in any other previous inauguration. So um, people here in the city are taking it or leaving it at the moment, or else they're just pretending. Some, a lot of people like me and other people are pretending it's actually not happening. But of course, that's not a good way to look at it. But uh, when you hear this, I guess Donald Trump, by the time you hear this, Donald Trump will be the president of the United States. I... I can't, can I ever say President Trump? I know, I, actually, I said Obama for a long time. I don't say President Obama. But in normal conversation, you don't say President somebody or other, right? You say Obama or Eisenhower or that dates me or, you know, or, or whatever, or Bush. But uh, his official title will be President of the United States. Um, Donald Trump, Donald J. Trump, President of the United States. It's just astounding, and it makes me feel, although, you know, I'm old, and I've got <clears throat> various problems, so I feel this way generally anyhow, but, um, you know, not feeling my best. But I've, when it comes to Donald Trump being president of the United States and all the people he's picked and the fact that the Republicans will have uh, control of all three branches of government, I have to say that I have never felt so helpless in all my life as a citizen, as an American. I mean, since I was a kid, since I was a kid, there was, uh, it always seems like there was a possibility, there was a chance that, um, that by uh, voting or by a process of, um, of uh, making yourself heard, of joining organizations, of protesting, of demonstrating later on in the 60s, that you could change things, that things didn't have to be the same way all the time, that you could actually affect the course of your government. Now, um, it's true that over the decades that governments have become more and more remote from people and that it's, um, it's not something that uh, people feel that they have much control of anymore. I mean, I think if you looked at a kind of a graph of it, you would see that people feel uh, increasingly and have felt increasingly over the last couple of decades or a few decades that as executive power has increased, and as just just government itself is centralized and larger and larger, um, that you have less control over it. You have less of an input. <clears throat> it's almost as if the government itself is like, um, like a separate country, almost like an occupying force, a separate country to the, to the one we all live in. I mean, we're, here we are all an American, but... Um, Americans, but uh, the government itself seems like a separate force, and um, now it seems more that way than ever. Um, now we've got this throwback to all these uh, rich people who he's picked, and that's another story. That's a throwback, uh, which I'll get to in a little while. But I do feel a certain feeling of helplessness. Now, like I say, there's been an increasing feeling of uh, that way. As a citizen, you feel less and less able to, um, to affect the government, to have a, an effect on your own government. And um, it's, uh, why is that? It's, a, it's inevitable that there's a kind of a, <clears throat> excuse me, there's a kind of a centralization of power that's been going on, and especially executive power. More and more executive orders are signed, um, more agencies are created, 
there are so many agencies that uh, the average citizen doesn't even know what they are. Probably people in government don't know, even, know, even know what they are. There are domestic intelligence agencies. There are foreign intelligence agencies. There are prolifer proliferating, proliferating uh, government agencies. I guess that's one thing that Trump and his Republican buddies all have in common. The people he's picked for the cabinet and other people, uh, Republicans in Congress, have always been going on and on and on about, I guess since Roosevelt, I guess since Roosevelt, that they want less government. They want less government. Well, now they have their chance to do that. Now they have their chance to do it. Um, but how will that affect all of us? I have, I have no idea how it's going to affect all of us. Um, now, I have some random thoughts and observations, and I'm not sure they'll all be connected or linear in any way. Uh, one thing was the tremendous irony, I realize, um, or I note the tremendous irony, that on Monday we celebrated the birth and life of Martin Luther King. And Martin Luther King was, for my generation, I guess, and for, uh, for you know, for... People who were younger than me and people who were older than me, um, sort of all-encompassing. He was one of the most inspired. To me, he's the greatest American that ever lived, uh, all things considered. Um, being black and, uh, you know, achieving what he did, putting his body on the line, uh, paying the ultimate price uh, against bigotry and hatred, uh, racism. But uh, also the fact that he was... Uh, he was so intelligent and so articulate, and the way he could speak, nobody, I've never heard anybody speak like that. So we celebrated on Monday the birth uh, and life of Martin Luther King. And like I say, a brave and honest and articulate man, <clears throat> essentially dedicated to healing wounds. That's what he was dedicated to doing, to healing wounds. He was a Christian. He was a student and, uh, and somewhat of a follower of Gandhi. And he was a real Christian. He, he didn't want to turn the other cheek necessarily, but he wanted, to, he wanted to heal wounds between people. I think his greatest desire, I mean, along with uh, achieving uh, freedom and decency uh, for and decent recognition of, of black people, uh, and getting people who are getting black people, you know, their actual rights and liberties as Americans. I mean, aside from that, he wanted to, he had a habit of reaching across uh, various gaps and divides, racial, racial divides. Uh, during the war, he was uh, being a Christian. He was uh, um, extremely opposed to the Vietnam War. He gave a famous speech at Riverside Church denouncing the war and saying how immoral it was. But he was, um, he was well known and he was an established figure, maybe one of the great figures in the 20th century and maybe in the last 100 years that I can think of, maybe nobody more than him, who wanted to reach across um, the great divides. There's so many different divides in the country, racial, economic, uh, ethnic, uh, power divides, and he wanted to reach across them, and he wanted to, um, he wanted to equalize everybody. He actually did believe uh, in the American ideal, which is uh, all men and all women are created equal, that all people are created equal, and he wanted it to be 
proved in, you know, in real time, in real life. So, that, so we celebrated his birth and his life on, um, on Monday. And today we swear in Donald Trump, who is a supremely corrupt, dishonest demagogue. And he is devoted to creating wounds, not to healing wounds, to creating divides, to creating divides. Uh, and, you know, you have to ask how this happened. But uh, for that, I guess you need a panel, and there will be a panel, and there already have people, people have been, you know, speculating on this and talking about this. And it's far too large and wide a subject to talk about now. But uh, because you'd have to do a tremendous analysis of American politics and culture. But today we are swearing in Trump. And the question a lot of people are asking is, if you think of Martin Luther King and then you think of Donald Trump, you think, how did it come to this? How did it come to this? How did America get so divided and so angry and, in fact, so superficial that we have selected uh, a man who is really um, more of a figurehead than a real solid uh, citizen in a way. I mean, here's a guy who, I don't know about Martin Luther King and his taxes, but here's a guy who has tried everything he could to get away with everything he could. I mean, he had um, deferments during, um, not that I didn't, you know, I'm not going to want to be hypocritical. I had deferments, I had a de two deferments during uh, the Vietnam War, uh, basically because uh, I would say, you know, partially it was my political belief that it was completely wrong. But also I was just afraid to go over there. And I was not interested in killing off a bunch of people who were going to fight for their own freedom and fight for their own country um, you know, just the way that we did in our revolution. It just seemed wrong to me. It was wrong in every way. And the way that our forces were behaving over there, that we had taken over for the French, that we were colonialists, uh, just of another sort, even though, that, as always, we talked about freedom. But I had my draft deferments, and so did Donald Trump. Okay, so Donald Trump is going to be the commander-in-chief of, um, of the United States military forces, the commander-in-chief. And, of course, he'll have the nuclear codes, which is, it's impossible for me to understand. It's, it, to me, it's like incomprehensible that Donald Trump, think of Donald Trump and his crazy teenage tweets and his tremendous impulsivity having the codes to nuclear weapons. And actually, I, I don't know what the process is for him to use nuclear weapons. I don't know if he... Um, if he has um, people that he has to check with or that people have any control over him at all. But from what I understand, the man is the chief executive of the United States. He's the president of the United States, which makes him the commander-in-chief, according to the Constitution, of the armed forces. And the nuclear weapons are part of the armed forces, uh, the armed forces, um, you know, uh, the armed force of the United States. And um, I... <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. It seems, it seems I guess I'll keep saying this over and over again. It seems absolutely impossible. I can't keep it in my head. I can't picture it that this man, Donald Trump, will be in charge of the armed forces of the United States. Um, he seems, I mean, no matter who we're dealing with here, if it was uh, anybody, it was, uh, you know, uh, 
it was uh, Lyndon Johnson even uh, and his Vietnam and his Vietnam War. John Kennedy before him with the Vietnam War. Lyndon Johnson, John Kennedy with the Cuban crisis. Can you imagine? What, what do you think of what? What would you feel if there was the same kind of crisis, the Cuban Missile Crisis, uh, happening now that was happening with John Kennedy and the Russians? Because such a thing could happen in its own way. I mean, we are close to that kind of trouble right now. Not that we're not provoking it ourselves, but we are um, in a position and in a point in the world right now where we may come uh, to uh, a, something like a Cuban Missile Crisis, not infrequently, actually. And you always wanted to think that there were sober, intelligent, logical people handling it, not impulsive people who would fly off the handle and do almost anything. Um, but here's Donald Trump. Uh, we have uh, China building islands in the, uh, in the South China Sea uh, near Vietnam. They're just taking it over. They're just taking it over. And they are expanding. They're inevitably expanding. And uh, Henry Kissinger was always talking about, was it... Um, I forget the term now, but uh, zones of power. There was, uh, I'm paraphrasing, talking about zones of power. He, uh, his political point of view internationally was that certain huge powers really uh, should be in charge of the areas where they were. They should be the ones who not necessarily um, who, uh, had taken over, would, would take over the governments and control all the people like empires. Well, maybe he meant that too. I don't know. But uh, that America, for instance, would be in charge of, um, of at, as it sort of is de facto in a way, but not completely, in charge of um, the Western Hemisphere, the, uh, you know, Canada, um, the North American, uh, Central American, South American continents. Uh, America being the most powerful country by far in this area, uh, and economically too, that we sort of, um, this is our zone of influence, our zone of, uh, of effective power. Um, and that Russia, uh, in its own way, uh, as it used to be in the Soviet Union, is the great zone of power in um, starting at the borders of uh, Eastern Europe and all through Russia, of course, and the southern uh, the, the southern. Uh, states of Russia, which are now free, but how long they'll remain that way uh, is anybody's guess. I mean, the way it looks with Putin is that he wants to reestablish the Soviet Union, and he wants to take over these countries again. And China, uh, inevitably and increasingly, once upon a time the way Japan did, but China now, with its massive armed forces and its huge economy, uh, and its just great political power, military, economic, and political power, is slowly but surely, and a lot of people would say inevitably, expanding uh, their influence and their dominance in um, in Southeast Asia. And uh, once the, you know, that's what Japan, that's what Japan wanted to do once upon a time by um, um, by military force, and what it tried to do, but it didn't get away with it. Uh, but this is what China is doing, and then there are questions to ask. And Trump has asked some of these questions. Is Trump? I have a friend who's a practicing Buddhist, who's a listener of mine and a correspondent of mine, and he um, he's always trying to get me not to judge. And I do have a, a terrible habit of seeing everything in black and white. I am not Martin Luther King. Um, 
I am not, and I am not a sober, reasonable, intelligent person. I'm far from it. I'm impulsive and uh, emotionally uh, liable to go in every direction at once. So, um, uh, what was I talking about? <laughs> I don't even remember. So, um, here's, uh, here's um, Donald Trump, who is very much the same way. And imagine him in charge. For instance, um, the United States, I don't know what Obama was thinking, or maybe it's all part of getting tough right before he leaves office, or uh, it's because of Putin and his threatening ways. The United States has apparently, uh, I read on the Internet the other day, sent American advisors, American soldiers, American advisors, into Poland, into Poland, on the border of what used to be the Soviet Union, right on the doorstep of Russia. Uh, American troops are now in there as advisors. And what must the Russians think of that? And the Chinese, of course, um, see the American uh, fleet in the South China Sea. Uh, we have various uh, fleets uh, in the Mediterranean, in the Persian Gulf, in the South China Sea, um, in, um, in the Atlantic, of course, and in the Pacific. And these, these fleets, an American force, a military force, are seen as threats. They are seen as threats by China and by Russia, who are expanding at the same time, and we see them as threats. But uh, maybe, it, uh, and oh, this is what Trump was saying, I guess, and that's what I was trying to say before, but I forgot. Trump is saying that maybe it's not the worst idea in the world. Well, he's all over the place. One thing, he wants to bomb everybody uh, one day or one hour with his tweets, uh, with a speech. And the next day, he wants, to, um, he wants to withdraw. He doesn't want America to be the cop of the world. So I'm, nobody, the truth is nobody really knows what he wants. But um, uh, it's hard to say what's going to happen in the world. And it's scary. It's scary. Uh, China and Russia and other countries and you know, nuclear armaments and huge forces. Uh, America is coming closer and closer, um, partially because it's extending it. It has, has extended itself and is extending itself into the rest of the world. I mean, American troops in Poland, uh, American troops in Afghanistan on the border of China and not too far from Russia, uh, American troops in, uh, in Syria now, American troops in uh, Iraq, not too far from Russia, right? So we've been... <clears throat> throwing our weight around for a long time. And uh, now, um, since we're experiencing um, our own economic troubles, and um, because Putin has uh, gotten a lot of power, his power has gone to his head, he's virtually a dictator and a megalomaniac, and because the Chinese uh, are more and more sure of their economic power and their military power, there will be confrontations. And there are already confrontations, like uh, I said about uh, China in the South China Sea uh, with American uh, warships. So who knows what's going to happen and who's in charge of all this? Who's in charge of making decisions about what to do, how to send troops, how to direct the fleets, um, where, to, uh, where to place uh, nuclear missile installations or not nuclear missile installations, but um, anti-missile uh, warheads in various places? Donald Trump. Donald Trump. I don't know. It's it's very scary.
like I say, imagine him being in charge during the Cuban Missile Crisis. And what what would have come of that? Um, other thoughts I have about Donald Trump. Um, I ex- like I say, I expected huge protests today when I came down. Protests in front of Trump Tower and demonstrations, but there wasn't. There was not a thing. The bus just went, you know, sailing right along. And um, I have, uh, I guess, like I say, all the actions in Washington. Although tomorrow, there's a huge women's march in Washington. A women's march. And um, there'll be um, a branch of it, a large branch of it, marching in um, in um, in New York City. I think probably, inevitably, it's going to be near the Trump Tower. Um, which brings up something else: is that um, um, first of all, I wanted to. I'm, I'm wondering, will Trump live in New York City? Do you think Trump is going to live in New York City? I hope not. I heard today on NPR that uh, the White House staff, uh, that is to say the, um, the staff that takes care of the, um, of the East Wing, of the residents, uh, now all the Obama uh, furniture and uh, knickknacks and the personal stuff has been moved out. And um, they are putting up pictures. I think they said family pictures of the Trumps. They are bringing in um, uh, some furniture that belongs to the Trumps. They're cleaning the place up, and they are installing things. And then the expectation is that he's going to uh, be moving in with his family into the White House. I don't know. Trump doesn't like to ever stay someplace where he doesn't own it. And well, I guess he feels like probably now, as soon as he gets sworn in anyhow, that he owns the White House, that it's the Trump White House. And he'll think of it as another hotel, inevitably. Uh, of his own hotel or his own penthouse, like in the Trump Tower. But um, there will be protests um, in New York City, and they have already had a tremendous effect on traffic. This is uh, where Trump Tower is, and that's where most of the protests and demonstrations will be, near Trump Tower or at Trump Tower on Fifth Avenue. It's a central hub in New York City uh, for traffic, central hub for traffic. Uh, Traffic in Manhattan, a lot of it gets rooted right through there, right through there. And uh, it's already caused uh, troubles, and it's going to cause a lot more troubles when he's the president and when people are going to choose that as a symbolic place to demonstrate. Also, it's a threat to security. This is really a threat to security. Um, the, uh, the NYPD is already, because of security and because of traffic concerns, they're spending several hundred thousand dollars extra every day, every day, this could break the New York City Police Department. Every day they're spending hundreds of thousands of extra dollars for extra cops to assign there and for overtime. And um, um, part of it is because of security. When he is the president, and there's already been a bomb scare. There was a bomb scare the other day, which paralyzed everything in a concentric circle of like 20 blocks. The entire area of Midtown got paralyzed the other day because it was a bomb scare. And uh, there's a real danger there. It's not just a bomb scare. I mean, uh, terrorists will think now, uh, you know, unhinged terrorists, uh, suicide bombers or truck bombers or whatever, will probably think of this as their primary destination now, the Trump Tower. Trump's name is all over everything, right around 57th Street in Midtown Manhattan, um, uh, 59th Street, 57th Street, Trump Real Estate, Trump this, Trump International Hotel, Trump, Trump everything. So, uh, and especially Trump Tower, of course. 
So there's a real danger to the city, and the NYPD is spending all this extra money. They asked the federal government to reimburse them. I don't know. I don't know if the federal government will reimburse them. Um, I hope they do. And uh, the federal government, but, but on the other hand, you do want New York City cops there. You don't want uh, federal troops. You don't want army troops patrolling the streets of New York City with, um, with uh, semi, I mean, the cops already have semi-automatic weapons uh, and automatic weapons. Uh, they have uh, some, whatever the latest version of an M16 is. But you don't want, actually, you don't actually see soldiers in uniform because is that a democracy? Is that America? You don't want to see soldiers in uniform patrolling midtown Manhattan. I mean, it happened after um, 9-11, and it was scary to see. You get a feeling that, uh, you know, you're on, I mean, it's martial law in a way. You get a feeling like it's martial law, and it's a scary thing to see. And one thing I've been wondering is, um, actually, I think what I will do is, well, let's take a little break right now, and uh, we'll come back in a little bit. to is on a podcast or you're listening to a live streaming, then you know who I am already. But I'm used to uh, old-fashioned radio where uh, people used to ID themselves and the show at, uh, at the break, at the half-hour break. So this is uh, Mike Fader. The name of the show is The Turning Point. And we're talking about Trump, talking about Trump's inauguration. Um, I'm, um, I will be traveling around the city on buses, going to various places um, during the time when he's being sworn in. I don't have a smartphone, so I can't be looking at the screen to see him actually being sworn in or uh, making his inaugural speech. Can you imagine Trump's inaugural speech? Think of Barack Obama. Think of Bill Clinton, who used to go on too long. But think of Bill Clinton. Think of Barack Obama. Think of John Kennedy and uh, making an inaugural speech. And then think of Donald Trump making an inaugural speech. Donald Trump, who during his speeches uh, was almost inarticulate, was uh, unable to uh, build and shape a long, beautiful crescendo uh, or even a poetic crescendo of words and sentences and paragraphs to, uh, to tell people. And he's famous for not following the teleprompter, which I think this is interesting. You know, I mean, uh, I can understand his appeal. I mean, that's part of Trump's appeal for a lot of people is he's not going according to the script. In fact, I think that's what got him elected, you know, obviously. It's not his quote-unquote policies, which he may alter or change, and you never know where you stand with his policies, but it's his, um, it's his style. It's his style as much as his content. Or I, I would say that it's his style more than his content. And with charismatic, fig charismatic figures like um, 
John Kennedy and uh, in some ways Bill Clinton, certainly Barack Obama. Yeah, it's it's also their it's their style too. It's their style too. Their their humor, their passion, their way of speaking, the way they infuse their speeches with intelligence and with logic and with uh, with an appeal, an inspirational appeal to something higher and greater. It doesn't matter sometimes if it was all bullshit, <laughs> but uh, they meant what they were saying. They meant what they were saying enough so that it was stirring. And even if it was just a performance to rouse the morale of the American people or to keep the morale of the American people going or to inspire people, it worked. It was, uh, it was something uh, interesting. Um, but Trump, Trump does not have that effect. I mean, obviously, he's had that effect on, um, on uh, tens of millions of voters. Tens of millions of voters have... Uh, have rallied behind Trump and voted for him um, because of uh, what he said and maybe even the way he said it. It's his style of speaking, which is very um, modern in a way. Uh, when you think of Obama, you might almost say that at this point, maybe he's, called, maybe he's old-fashioned now. Maybe these long uh, or uh, well-crafted, logical, inspirational, articulate speeches are uh, vanishing into the past. Maybe that's not America, American culture anymore, or even American language. Uh, do we have anybody who speaks that way anymore? I don't know. Anybody in uh, prominent political life? I don't know. Um, but here's Trump. Here's Trump, who represents the modern world and modern America. He, you know, he speaks in bursts. Uh, he uses. Uh, trite sort of uh, phrases like huge, huge, it's going to be terrific, it's going to be huge. Is, I, I, I guess I will listen to, unless it's printed in the Times, unless they print the entire, uh, in the newspaper, which is the newspaper I read, if they print the entire uh, inaugural speech, then I'll read the entire inaugural speech, as much for the style as for the content. Um, <clears throat> as I say, I don't really, and nobody really knows what his policies are, because they change from time to time. But here's the master of the tweet. Now, I don't know anything about Twitter. I was never on Twitter. I probably should be in the modern world um, as a radio personality or whatever it is I am, even in a minor, very minor way compared to what I used to be. But uh, I have never, I don't know, and people on Twitter have followers, and they issue tweets all the time. And what is it? I forget. 147 characters. I don't remember the exact number. But you have to say things in a succinct way, which is not the worst thing in the world sometimes. Sometimes people will go on too long. If you remember, Clinton used to speak far too long. Uh, he used to just ramble on and on and on. And I have, uh, <laughs> and people got tired of it. And uh, you didn't want him to just come up on stage and just tweet. You know, you wanted to hear something substantial from him, but you didn't want to hear an hour or an hour and a half the way he used to. Although that's the way I've been reading. I often read uh, historical um, uh, books on history, and uh, it was common that in the 19th century people gave speeches that lasted uh, an hour, two hours, even three hours long. Lincoln and Douglas and all these people, um, you know, uh, or they were all orators, and they were used to speaking that way. Uh, people who made closing, lawyers who made closing arguments in legal cases, for instance, could talk for several hours, even go over into the next day making a closing argument. Uh, 
in an illegal case. Clarence Darrow was famous for that. But now what we've done is we've come down, since America is going faster all the time, everything is faster, we've come down to tweets. And here's Donald Trump tweeting things all the time. And when he gets up on stage uh, from the few uh, campaign speeches I saw and from the debates, um, he doesn't like to go on and on and on. And he's very brief and he speaks, uh, is it his mind or his heart? Or is it either one? I don't know. Uh, sometimes I think he speaks just from the t from the edge of his ego. Uh, it's his ego speaking, uh, not necessarily his mind or his heart. Uh, he's an emotional guy and uh, emotional man, and he speaks from his heart, from his ego. I don't know, but tweets. So I can't imagine what the uh, inaugural speech will be like, but we'll find out very shortly, I guess. Um, I think, uh, I don't know when the speech is. He's sworn in at exactly at noon, and I think after he's sworn in, yes, after he's sworn in is when he'll make his inaugural speech. And he doesn't like to follow teleprompters. Like I say, you know, that uh, has its own uh, appeal, has its own appeal, and obviously had its appeal to, the, to his followers and to people like that. Um, another thing I was thinking about is that since there will be so many uh, organizations springing up, anti-Trump or anti, um, you know, uh, the protest organizations against the new government policies, which are going to true, which are uh, aiming at things like Medicare and Medicaid and Social Security and basically uh, uh, education for, for public education, all these things that the Republicans want to reduce or get rid of or privatize. All of these things will have, uh, there are already organizations established to deal with these things, but all these places will have more and more organizations and more uh, active organizations to oppose all, all this uh, new government behavior. Um, and as I say, so those will be organized uh, groups, and then there will be probably more or less constant demonstrations. Whether people will demonstrate in the street anymore, I don't know. I have no idea if people will do what the union movement did back uh, at the turn of the century of the 19th century and 20th century, back in the, era 19, in the 1910, 1915, 1920, the uh, vast, powerful, often uh, violent because illegal demonstrations uh, that unions put on um, to uh, establish themselves as entities and to get workers' rights. Uh, to limit the uh, work week from seven days, to limit child labor, all the things that unions were famous for. So there will be people doing that. There will be people, uh, I think, uh, protest. I wonder, I should say, I wonder if people will be doing that anymore. This is the modern Internet Twitter age uh, when people, you can press things and you can sign petitions and you can click things. And I don't really know if people will be getting out on the street. But I believe still, is it left over from the 60s, that people do need to get out on the street. There were all kinds of organizations and anti-war anti uh, groups and uh, organized groups uh, during the 60s against the war. But what the most powerful thing was, and maybe this is a different time in American history and culture, the most powerful thing was the huge demonstrations and marches, not all of them legal all the time, um, in Washington, in big cities. Um, and um, that, was, that was a powerful influence, just like the, uh, the great union demonstrations and marches, uh, you know, in the uh, 
19, early 1900s. And I don't know, the, the, the last thing that anybody ever did like that that I know of was the Occupy movement. And it was, um, it was ridiculed by the newspapers and generally the media, the media in general, ridiculed or ignored. Um, and ultimately, it was uh, some of these places which didn't uh, fall apart by themselves because they were too anarchistic, I think, and didn't really have any moving, um, any moving organization, which was uh, deliberate. Um, they were attacked by the police when they didn't fall apart, far, fall apart by themselves. They were just attacked by the police. Uh, there was a lot of restraint shown by local and state police and cops, but finally, they were attacked by the police, and the uh, the encampments, the Occupy encampments, were disbanded. But the last time I think that I've seen something like that is uh, then. Uh, before that, you have to go back to the start of uh, the war in Iraq, when uh, millions of people poured out on the streets in various countries in the world. But in New York City, uh, there were hundreds of thousands of people who were corralled by the cops. More and more demonstrations against, and there were, you know, demonstrations at the Republican convention um, in New York City. And uh, the cops have a tendency now, the increasingly militarized cops, by the way, have a tendency to corral people, to, um, to, uh, to, and whenever there are demonstrations at, uh, you know, at presidential, uh, at conventions or large presidential speeches, the, the crowds are kept further and further away and sort of corralled as if they were, um, uh, yeah, I mean, the, uh, the excuse is they're a security threat, and obviously that's partially true. But uh, it's as if they have, there's less of an acknowledgement that they have a right to express their feelings almost directly to the people that they're angry at. Uh, make it 50 yards or 100 yards. But uh, people have been pushed away, uh, you know, uh, 500 yards, 1,000 yards from where something's going, uh, you know, taking place, there might as well not even be a demonstration. Think of what happened in 1968, the demonstration at the um, Democratic Convention in, um, in Chicago. People on the streets, uh, uh, in the park there, um, people got into the faces of people back in the day. And um, now people don't do that anymore. The government doesn't let them do that anymore. And between that suppression and that, um, that clear message sent by the government that they don't want to hear from you or see you as a citizen, and you can keep your opinion to yourself or you can scream all you want as long as 10,000 yards, it's like half a mile or a mile away from where the people that you're angry at are doing this. I don't know. Do, or it's a question. Will people be able to, to come out and do this kind of thing? I don't know. I don't know. And what will the... What will the Local cops and what will especially the federal uh, authorities and all of them, the NSA, the FBI, uh, the, even the CIA, which is not supposed to operate in the country, all of these places are going to be um, doing what they've always done, only they're far more efficient now and they have much more money to do it. And they'll be spying on organizations. Uh, they'll be hacking, of course, which did not happen before in history because there was nothing to hack. And they'll be using force. Uh, just like they use at the Occupy movement, uh, where you saw cops who were dressed up like uh, storm imperial uh, stormtroopers from uh, Star Wars. Um, other things. It's, uh, it's the time of the rich. Obviously, it is the time of the rich. I was watching the confirmation hearings, which are in some ways like charades. 
And one of the reasons for that is because the Republicans are in charge. And it doesn't matter who's been nominated. Uh, many people can, uh, and I watched the confirmation hearings, and there were, it's all these millionaires and billionaires. Um, I guess almost all white men, except for one exception, no, two exceptions. And um, you see where this is going. This is the time, once again, the rise or the return of, in spades, of, uh, of the rich, mostly white men. And um, the confirmation hearings were not really, um, were not really very edifying. I mean, people, uh, the, uh, the heads, of the Republican heads of each committee who were examining these people uh, put down a limit of five minutes apiece for, um, for questioning, which the Democrats got very angry at. You, you would think if it's advise and consent for nominations, they would have, you know, 10, 20 minutes to do something like this, as much time as they needed, I mean, within reason. But no, they were limited to the time they could ask questions. So basically, and, and a lot of them pointed out that a lot of these nominees um, foreclosed on widows and orphans, um, um, you know, used uh, illegal lending um, tactics. Uh, this guy, Steve Mnuchin, the Treasury Secretary, was the head of a bank, which is notorious. Also set up um, uh, tax-free accounts, uh, avoiding taxes in the Cayman Islands. Uh, you've got billionaires there who have uh, bought and sold businesses and put uh, uh, tens of thousands of people out of work, you know, merger and acquisition types, venture capital types. Uh, you've got people there. And, and uh, also, these are people... So these are people... Uh, talk about not being connected to the government. These are people who we have absolutely nothing in common with. Life gets harder and harder and harder. The middle class is almost drying up. Uh, there's more of, uh, you know, income inequality, more of an elite and more of a large number of poor people. And um, now we've got, uh, this is going to be institutionalized. And you've got the Supreme Court. Supreme Court will be a Republican majority for quite some time. Uh, right now it's four and four. But uh, Trump is inevitably going to appoint somebody very conservative and I don't know how successful the Democrats could ever be in blocking it or how long they can block it, but we will have, once again, a 5-4 majority and maybe more uh, when some, like somebody like Ginsburg retires because she's very old. And um, it could wind up being 6-3, uh, 7-2, I don't know. Trump may get to appoint all these people. So this is what's scary about it. So you've got all these rich people in, and what they really want to do is they want to take America back like 100 years, maybe more than 100 years, before Theodore Roosevelt, who came in with uh, trust busting to, uh, to get rid of these vast monopolies and these huge um, interlocking directorates of, uh, of groups of rich people that ran the entire country and put other people completely out of business and set uh, prices because they controlled every industry and ancillary industry. And uh, the Republicans want to go back to a time like that. They want to get rid of any kind of rules against monopolies and against monopolistic behavior. And certainly they want to go back before the time of FDR. They want to go back before the time of FDR. Um, and so all the things that started with, with Teddy Roosevelt and, you know, that, that came under uh, Franklin Roosevelt and later on, uh, way up into the 60s with Johnson and, you know, with some Republican presidents too, federal regulation of the air, water, 
land, food, drugs, all these things, uh, innovations from the 20th century, and conservation of federal land and, um, and air and water, all these things are going to be rolled back now. All these things are going to be rolled back. Also, protections for worker safety, consumer protections, uh, and utilities and banks will be out of control. It's always been hard to control utilities and banks, and they are uh, the worst predators of all. And then it's going to be completely out of control. And what's going to happen with all these struggles, which have never been really you know, uh, successfully achieved and are constantly uh, a problem? Now the Republicans control three branches of government and a lot of state governments and state legislatures. What about voting rights and fair housing, equal pay for women, minimum wage, women's rights, uh, look at Planned Parenthood and abortion, the war that they have to fight just to, to, to stay established. Uh, and what about the, the, the old in this country and the sick and the poor? Medicaid, Medicare, Social Security, all threatened, all under attack. It's a scary, scary time. It's a scary, scary time. I don't know what's going to happen. And um, one other thing, there are other things that bother me too. But uh, one thing is uh, prominent, maybe most prominent to me, is, is, uh, is Trump's contempt and disregard of the press. This is uh, a man, and I mean, he's allowed to do it. Freedom of speech, he can speak any way he wants, or not at all. But he's using tweets. He treats the press as if they didn't exist. Now, the press has been responsible for a lot of, uh, you know, um, a lot of scandal, a lot of gossip, a lot of... Uh, a lot of trouble in the United States. They have uh, created wars by their drumbeats. And the press has, uh, has, uh, has ruined lives, and it's been very dangerous, right? It has been very dangerous and very irresponsible. But still, now, we always do need a press. We need a free press if we're going to have a democracy. Without a free press, and that means that you can't treat them with uh, the same kind of contempt and disregard that Trump does. Well, whether he can, but they have to, I don't know what they're going to do. The Washington Bureau of the New York Times was just doubled. The New York Times said that it just doubled the Washington Bureau of the New York Times. And uh, thinks government is already doing too many things in secret anyhow. And um, Trump's disregard for the press is very scary to me. If he's just going to tweet things and not hold press conferences and the press is going to be treated with any respect at all, and the press being representatives asking questions that the people themselves can't um, and reporting on things that the people themselves don't have, uh, the citizens, Americans, don't have the ability to do, um, it's very difficult. I don't know what's going to happen. And uh, I worry about uh, the whole idea of the press and freedom of the press. And I guess uh, the last thing is uh, it's all this discord and anger and hatred uh, that Trump uh, naturally creates. Um, uh, the, um, the, 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 the habit he has or the style or the, the, the need he has to create trouble and problems between people can only be bad, can only be bad. Um, I don't really see him running the country, but it's his, it's his public, it's his persona. It's the way he talks in public. Um, I s personally, I think Pence is going to be actually running the government day to day, like Cheney once ran the government. Cabinet meetings, intelligence briefings, military dispositions, legislative planning, that kind of thing. Um, 
And I guess in the end, um, what can we do? What can we do with this overwhelming worry and doubt? Uh, the only thing I can think of is, um, is to end here with a quote from Martin Luther King. The arc of the moral universe is long, but bends toward justice. I guess we're going to have to work hard and endure until the moral arc starts to bend. Cause I went walking with an old highway. I saw the an endless skyway. I saw the loving of a golden valley. This land was made for you and me. This land is your land. This land is mine. From California to New York. Is that?